So Pastor Ron started last week on this subject of uh, the canon of Scripture, authority, the authority of Scripture, God's Word to us. And so this week is part two of that lesson on authority. Um, we'll continue this and then next week move on to, I think, inerrancy and go from there. So as we continue this necessary argument for the divine authority of Scripture, it's important for us to clearly understand a few points which we'll look at today. So today, basically, we're going to walk through, it's actually a lecture by Sam Waldron on the authority of Scripture. So I think it's really good. Um, So we'll walk through it and give thought to this topic of authority. We'll look at some church history It'll get technical here and there, um, and we'll just walk through some verses that show us clearly the authority of the Word of God. So again, um, we're going to walk through a lecture by Sam Waldron, which is one of my favorite teachers, so I'm excited. Okay, so again, it's important for us to understand and have a clear understanding of a few points as we continue this topic of the authority of Scripture. So first, we'll look at key terminology, and you'll see this in your notes uh, page. At least there are titles, and you can fill that in as you choose. Um, We'll look at key terminology. We'll look at something uh, that Waldron calls the crucial evidence. Uh, We'll look at the critical objections, and we'll look at the argument, this avalanche argument, um, which comes from B.B. Warfield. So first... Key terminology. We're under um, heading one, key terminology. So we want to define briefly a few words as we consider the authority of Scripture. We've talked about some of this in the past, um, so it'll sound familiar in some areas. But again, just brief descriptions that we want to consider under key terminology. So inspiration. What do we mean when we say inspiration? Um, It's an immediate divine influence that produces the Bible. When we say the Bible is inspired, an immediate divine influence that produces the Bible. So paragraph 2 of chapter 1 in the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith, which deals with the Holy Scriptures, describes Scripture as the Word of God written. So as it concerns understanding Scripture as the Word of God written, it's important for us to define a few things first. So we would affirm that scripture is, one, infallible. The Bible is not liable or accountable to deceive, not capable of error, and not liable or accountable to be mistaken. So if one reads the Bible and uh, walk away uh, feeling deceived, The issue is not the Bible, the issue is the man. If one reads the Bible and feels like it's mistaken about something or it has um, misunderstood something or led them astray in some way, the issue is not the Bible, the issue is the man. The Bible lays out for us reality, ultimate reality. Now, That's not to say that one can't read the Bible and walk away with a right understanding, uh, but it is to say that if one walks away with the wrong understanding, the blame never lies with the Word of God. It lies in the man, Um, and we would affirm that we are fallen. Um, We all read the Bible at times and walk away with um, interpretations that may not be right. 
me, uh, all of us, um, are privy to having wrong interpretations. But the point is that the Bible is infallible. Um, we, we would also affirm verbal plenary inspiration. Now that sounds like a big word. Um, it did to me when I first heard it. But the words, uh, the words of the Bible, verbal, and all the words, plenary, are inspired. Verbal plenary inspiration. We would also affirm that the word of God is inerrant. The Bible contains no error. It is without error. Um, and we would say that it's inerrant in all that it affirms. So though the Bible contains statements, this is important, though the Bible contains statements made by wicked men and the devil, it does not itself, it does not mean that the Bible itself is wicked or wrong. Um, it affirms that wicked men spoke, the devil spoke, but the Bible does not itself become a wicked book. The Bible speaks of unholy men while being itself a holy book. The Bible quotes unholy men while being itself a holy book. So I was thinking about this as I was going through the study, and um, I thought about Psalm 2, which I'll read a little bit of. So Psalm 2, starting at verse 1. I'm just going to read the first two verses. Psalm chapter 2, starting at verse 1, it says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Why do the nations rage in vain, rage and the people plot in vain? That's a sinful thing. It's wrong that the nations rage in vain, rage and plot in vain, and kings set themselves and rulers take counsel against the Lord. That's sinful. That's wrong. That does not mean that the Bible is now wicked and sinful and wrong because it uh, says this is what these wicked men did. It's actually affirming reality and affirming the character of God by calling that action wicked. God is holy. Men are fallen and wicked. It's actually affirming reality for us. It's not, the Bible itself does not become um, evil because it says evil men did evil things. Or even says, quotes Satan and says, Satan said this to Jesus in the temptation. The Bible is still infallible in God's word. Um, second, let's consider the crucial evidence. Waldron lays out second, the crucial evidence. So three classes of evidence for scriptural authority can be distinguished. The first class is the evidence of the Old Testament to the Old Testament. Second, the evidence of the New Testament to the Old Testament. Third, the evidence of the New Testament to the New Testament. So one in three, Old Testament affirming Old Testament, New Testament affirming New Testament, are important, but are themselves, left by themselves, are incomplete. The clearest evidence is two, which I agree with Waldron in saying that, the New Testament's affirmation of the Old Testament, because it witnesses to the inerrancy of the Old Testament as an organic whole. So we talked about this, and we've talked about this in past classes. Um, at the end of our lesson on the canon of Scripture Old Testament, we walk through this, so if you want a sort of more in-depth study of this, you can go back and listen to that um, teaching. Um, 
Jesus believed the law, the prophets, and the Psalms were prophetic of him. So again, we're thinking about... Are y'all seeing my updates from Facebook? Okay. <laughs> um, we're thinking about the evidence of the New Testament to the Old Testament. Uh, Luke 24, 27. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So this, this Moses, the law, um, uh, the prophets, and all the scriptures, again, we talked about that in our uh, class on the canon, Old Testament canon. This is uh, phraseology for the whole of the Old Testament. Uh, Jesus believed the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, indeed, the whole of the Old Testament pointed to him and was prophetic of him. Uh, Jesus authenticated... <clears throat> Jesus authenticated people and events. He authenticated Adam and Eve in Matthew 19, 5. Jonah in Matthew 12. Daniel in Matthew 24. Noah in the flood. The the destruction of Sodom in in Luke 17. So, again, the New Testament's um, affirmation of the Old Testament. This evidence may logically be extended to the New Testament since it is as superior to the Old Testament. So again, the point we're making here, we're looking at crucial evidence and these classes of scriptural authority. And so Waldron says, well, the Old Testament affirms the Old Testament. You see uh, inter-quoting of each other in the Old Testament. Same in the New Testament. But the stronger argument is the New Testament quoting the Old Testament. Jesus quotes the Old Testament as a whole. It's authoritative, obviously, to him. And then he goes on to say, well, this has to logically lead us to the New Testament having the same authority. Because the New Testament, it says in Hebrews 1.1, or Christ as is um, superior to the Old Testament. So long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. So <clears throat> the Gospels are about the person and work of Christ, who Christ was and what Christ did, and what he continued to do through the Holy Spirit acts. The epistles are the explanation of doctrines, Christ's teachings expounded through the apostles to the church. That's what you, we see in First and Second Corinthians and Colossians and Philippians and all these other things. So he's stringing together this argument, which I think is a good argument, um, this crucial evidence to see that uh, the Bible is the word of God, Old Testament, New Testament. Old Testament is clearly authoritative because Christ quoted from it. And the New Testament has to logically be authoritative as well because it's superior to the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Okay. <clears throat> now, those two were a little shorter. We'll spend a lot more time on three and four. Um, the, cr- the, the critical objections from the humanity of the Bible. So it's going to get a little technical, but stick with me. (laughs) Um, So this objection can be stated in this way. Again, we're thinking about the authority of Scripture. Here's one objection. The Bible is written by men. Men are free, finite, and errant. Therefore, the Bible must contain error. You follow that? The Bible's written by fallen 
sinful men. Um, therefore, the Bible must contain error. We hear that a lot, um, and we'll walk through uh, answering that objection. First, I'll start with a quote from John Murray. He says, uh, this plain and disputed fact, this fact that the Bible is written by men, men are free and finite and errant, has led many students of the Bible to the conclusion that the Bible cannot be in itself the infallible and inerrant word of God. In the words of Dr. J. Monroe Gibson, he says this, it is important at the outset to remember that the most consummate artist is limited by the nature of his material. He says he may have thoughts of and inspirations far above and beyond what he can express in black or white or in color or in marble or bronze in speech or in song, but however perfect his idea may be, it must, in finding expression, share the imperfections of the forms in which he works. If this very obvious fact had only been kept in mind, most of the difficulties which beset the subject of inspiration need never have arisen. So that sounds uh, eloquent, and it sounds like, huh, that, let me think about that for a sec, and we will, <laughs> and we'll walk through it. Um, so basically he's saying, even as an artist, he may have very lofty thoughts of what he has in mind to, to, to pin or to draw or to whatever here, but he's still limited um, as a man by uh, the materials that he uses. As it comes from his mind onto the paper, it has to um, go through the veil of some hindering it from being as high as it was as he communicates it. Um, so something happens from his mind to his uh, drawing that causes it to drop down a level. Does that make sense? Okay. I'm using art because I'm an artist and it helps me. Um, so Waldron lays out four considerations to show the fallacy of that argument. He says, again, uh, the, falla the fallacy is that since men are free, finite, and errant, and the Bible is written by men, therefore the Bible must contain error. First, we'll look at the reformed view of the divine and human. So sound theology sees divine and human as consistent. The orthodox view declares Christ as fully man, but say, say, says Christ is fully man, but says he is fully God and refuses to think that as man he is sinful. So the reformed view, the orthodox view actually goes back and looks at Christ and says, well, no, Christ was fully man and he was fully God. And because he was fully man, that doesn't mean he was sinful. <clears throat> the reformed affirmation that providence is in control of even a creature's free action. Even so, the Bible may be fully human, but divinely inerrant. So we look, we consider the Bible, and we consider Christ and look at Christ and say, he was fully God and fully man, and yet he was not sinful. Again, that's the, re the reformed orthodox view. Two, Waldron lays out the reformed doctrine of organic inspiration. Another very important topic. Organic inspiration. Organic inspiration is rooted in the reformed view of the divine and human that we just talked about. Organic inspiration denies a mechanical or dictation view of inspiration in which the humanity of the human writer is suspended. In other words, Paul ceases to be human 
And the moment he begins writing his letter to the Ephesians, but then as soon as he lifts his pen from the paper, his humanity continues, right? So we would say no. <clears throat> Again, the humanity of the human writer is suspended, but organic inspiration denies that. Um, organic inspiration also teaches that the human writer's own personalities and free agency were fully operational but affirms the complete and detailed divinity of the Bible as God speaking without human distortion. Okay, so we would reject uh, the dictation theory. Uh, man is not sort of a robot and he's human, he's, he's fallen, but then he pins and he's, he's, he's passive. He's, he just sort of steps aside in himself and then when he lifts his pen, he takes on humanity again. Um, we would deny that. Herman Boving actually states, just as every human thought and action is the fruit of the action of God in whom we live and move and have our being, and is at the same time the fruit of the activity of the human being, so also scripture is totally the product of the spirit of God who speaks through the prophets and apostles, and at the same time, totally the product of the activity of the authors. He says, everything is divine and everything is human. Again, we're thinking about the authority of the word of God. Um, these are really good and important things to think about um, because we run across this um, often. Those, those who oppose the faith and oppose the inerrancy of the word of God, they bring up these arguments, which I'm like, okay, I'm glad you gave thought to that, but let's talk about that a little more maybe walk through it and see if we can help them to understand and put these things together rightly. <clears throat> okay, <clears throat> so uh, Bobbing, he said, everything is divine and everything is human. How can that be? Because God made man's mouth, Exodus 4.1. Uh, through his general providence and special grace, God created the precise instrument desire. His providence and who they are, his providence in who they are and how they wrote. God's providence over Paul, who he was, and how he wrote. Um, the things that, his, his upbringing, what he came to know, um, all of this, <laughs> this gets at the sovereignty of God and the providence of God. Like, when you consider the details of a man's life and how God uses all these things to pin the word of God and it be infallible and it not be uh, separate from how God worked through this man's life. It's just, it's almost mind-blowing, <laughs> but it's just, it's so good for us to think about and understand, and it really gets at the sovereignty of God, which we'll look at specifically um, why the sovereignty of God is so huge in this discussion. Okay, um, third, Waldron says, Liberal deniers of full inspiration forfeit infallibility of any kind. Um, the admission of some infallibility, some, the admission of some fallibility, sorry, and inevitably leads to fallibility in everything. So you cannot say, well, the Bible is inerrant in some places and errant in others. That doesn't work. If part of it is tainted, the whole thing is tainted. If part of it can't be believed, None of it can be believed. So we have to hold to um, 
plenary inspiration, plenary, um, uh, the word of God is plenary. All parts of it is, uh, are inerrant as a whole, not in pieces. Um, okay, so <clears throat> I'm going to, another quote from John Murray here. And I'll, I'll pause after this for thoughts and questions. I know I'm saying a lot. I always pack these classes. I'm sorry. Um, but I'll pause after this and we can ask, ask some questions. So John Murray says, if human fallibility precludes or prevents an infallible scripture, then by resistless logic, it must be maintained that we cannot have any scripture that is infallible and inerrant. All of scripture comes to us through human instrumentality. If such instrumentality involves fallibility, then such fallibility must attach to the whole of scripture. For by what warrant can an, can an Im immunity from error be maintained in the matter of spiritual content and not in the matter of history or scientific fact. In human fallibility, it, it, is human fallibility suspended when spiritual truth is asserted but not suspended in other less important matters? Again, he's communicating that we cannot hold that some of the Bible may be um, in error. He says we have to hold that the whole of scripture is infallible. Um, he says, furthermore, if infallibility can attach to the spiritual truth enunciated by the biblical writers, then it is obvious that some extraordinary divine influence must have intervened and become operative so as to prevent human fallibility from leaving its mark upon the truth expressed. If divine influence could thus intrude itself at certain points, why should not this same preserving power exercise itself at every point in the writing of scripture. Again, surely human fallibility is just as liable to be at work in the connection with the enunciation of transcendent truth as it is when it deals with the details of historical occurrence. So summarized, if we say the Bible is off in um, its quoting of history, then the Bible, logically, we, we have to say, well, when it talks about the divine and who Christ is and heavenly things, it has to be, there has to be some way that we can say, well, maybe it's off there too. It has to be both. It cannot be off on little things and we say, well, but it's right on big things. We see the Bible as an organic whole, not compartmentalized. It is the word of God. It's whole and it's infallible. Okay, so pause, questions, or thoughts? I still got like five more pages, so. <laughs> Jeremy? Uh, it sounds like in making such an argument, what you're doing is you're attempting to elevate man above the, hmm. the very high and sovereign spiritual yes. being that you're trying to categorize in the first place. Which is our next point, actually. Read my mind, my notes. Right? <laughs> yes, that is huge and important thought. Um, so, parallel with Christ being both divine and human, it's interesting, especially in the sense God as Christ as divine, he has perfect attributes that aren't expressed in his humanity. Correct? Right? Right. He has limitations as a human being. Right. Um, and so I'm wondering what sense the Bible also has limitations. So I, 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 if I'm hearing what you're saying, 
I think the argument there is that, and look, so the Bible is the word of God. So me, um, how can I put this? Me uh, uh, putting together a poem that has scripture in it, my poem isn't the infallible word of God. The Bible is distinct from any other um, verbal writing or anything because it's the word of God. Christ is distinct, although fully God and fully man. Oh, and this is just a huge argument, uh, a huge topic. We can talk about this for a long time. But, by, but, but Christ as fully God and fully man, although he's fully man, is still um, distinct as Christ from human beings. All of us are human beings. Christ, we're, 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 we're man, we're fully man. Christ was fully man, yet he's distinct. So it really, it puts um, God's, um, something that has God's stamp on another tier, another level. The word of God, and even talking about Logos and the word of, the word of God and, and Christ being Logos, there's a connection there too, um, which is why this is a, this huge point. But uh, the Bible and Christ are on a different tier. And so there's a parallel there because it's God's word um, written. And if we, if we say that it's without flaw, although it's written by God, it is on, on par uh, or on the same level with Christ because Christ is flawless. Um, although he's human, he's flawless. Although the Bible is written, um, written by men, it's flawless. And so it, it put, I, I think that's uh, Waldron's argument and putting them on the same tier and, and the Reformed argument, the Orthodox argument, because they're both, uh, by, the, by the fact that the godness of it makes it distinct. Um, and it can't be on the same tier with, with men or any other writing. Christ be on the, can't be on the same level with men, and the Bible can't be on the same level with men. So it raises both and says, let's pull out of that and here. They have to be on the same level because of their, for lack of a better term, is that even a word, godness? I don't know. But that's the only word I can think of. Because of their godness, they're distinct. Uh, are you going to deal with criticism? Yes, we will. We will. Yes. And it doesn't take away the scripture. Right? But that is a, I don't think, I know, right? <laughs> He's tempted me to, to jump into it. Um, we'll talk. We're going to get into the narrative in the next few weeks after this lesson. Yeah. So for all y'all waiting for inerrancy and manuscripts and autographs, and yes, I'm as anxious as you are. Um, okay, one more, George, and then we'll move forward. Okay. <laughs> George, you always bring a unique... <laughs> That's why we love you, bro. <laughs> okay. Um, I think it was Jeremy said something that actually leads into our next uh, point. Um, and I thought if I should walk through some history and define this a little more, but I'm not going to. I'm just going to get into it. Um, Waldron's fourth point, <clears throat> or under this uh, critical uh, objection... He says, Armenian defenders of the doctrine of full inspiration cannot satisfactorily answer the liberal argument. Again, the argument that since men are free, finite, and errant, and the Bible is written by men, therefore the Bible must contain error. We'll see why. He says they can do one of three things. So, um, quick history, somewhat of history. So the... Um, Armenian's theological roots can be traced back to Pelagius. 
who was a 5th century British monk and theologian. And Pelagius had as his leading principle that man's will is absolutely free. And therefore, every man has the power within himself to embrace God or reject him. In this view, God's sovereignty is subject to man's will. We'll see how this framework affects how we view the authority of Scripture as inerrant, as the inerrant word of God. And I think this is why Waldron makes this argument that um, Armenian defenders of the doctrine of full inspiration can't satisfactorily answer uh, this liberal argument, which is, again, men are free, finite and errant, and the Bible is written by men, therefore the Bible must contain error. So he says, one, I think this is helpful. And we don't, we're not labeling um, Arminianism, Calvinism for the sake of labels. These things have, they're historical. We just want to be consistent and historically accurate as, as far as we can be. Um, and so we're, we're laying out, as opposed to uh, the Armenian view, J, uh, James Arminius, which goes back to Pelagius, um, the orthodox Calvinistic view of uh, these things. So don't get too caught up on the, the, the labels. We consider, were these men, men in their writings and understanding, how close were they to scripture? That's what matters. That's what we care about. Were they in line with the word? Were they not? Um, and that's what we want to be, in line with the word, as much as we can. <clears throat> okay, so first, he says in this, why Armenians can't answer this uh, question, he says, first, um, they will maintain, they will be forced to either one maintain a dictation theory of inspiration. So one of the, th one of the three things that they'll be forced to do, maintain a dictation theory of inspiration. Dictation theory, I talked about it a bit, but the dictation theory states that God dictated his word to the writers of scriptures who were nothing more than human stenographers for the Holy Spirit. The dictation theory says that the spirit wrote through the agency of human writers who were fully under God's control. With, with the authors in a state of relative passivity, God dictated every word written with, the, with pinpoint accuracy. In this way, human personality and human error could not interfere with God's intended message, is what the dictation theory would say. The human writers did not personally contribute anything to the content of scripture since they were passive instruments of God's will. So he's saying that if we maintain, and again, for the sake of um, our argument here, if, if someone who is, uh, maintains to an um, Armenian theology maintains that men are absolutely free um, in this they would have to, one of the three things that they would have to do is hold to a dictation theory that the man is, is passive. And we'll sort of talk about that a little bit as we walk through the next two. That the man is passive in this. Because, again, we're looking at the free will of men and the divine sovereignty of God and what the connection between those two is. But the evidence of the Bible's humanity is massive. This will be an unstable position, and they will likely move to one of the following alternatives. He says they may have to deny inerrancy. Back up. If I believe that man is totally free, as he's, uh, and freedom, his freedom actually is a freedom that overrides divine sovereignty, then as, I'll use myself as an example, um, myself, I'm pinning 
but I'm totally free, and the Spirit, uh, Word, God, breathe. If I'm totally free, I can sort of push the sovereignty of God out, and it's, it's me that has complete freedom and authority and my, my will as I'm right, right? But we don't hold to um, uh, a, a sovereignty of men that overrides the sovereignty of God. God is God. <laughs> there is no competition. And this gets to salvation, but we see how it affects other things. Men are not absolutely free in a sense of this sort of uh, bucking alongside the sovereignty of God. Um, and man, we can, if you have any other thoughts, we can talk about it after, but this is such a huge argument. But for the sake of time, let me keep going here. Um, he says they may have to deny inerrancy. Clark Pinnock's Arminianism forced him to give up inerrancy. Well, at least he was trying to be consistent. Uh, you cannot hold to absolute freedom of men over and above God as they pen scripture and hold that scripture is inerrant if men are not uh, subject to God's divine authority. Um, third, he says, the Armenian may have to give up Armenianism. Uh, the choice they may realize is either the reform view uh, or the liberal view of scripture. These are logical tendencies, but they will eventually come out. Um, so two conclusions um, Waldron lays out here, which I think are good. Inerrancy implies divine sovereignty and logically requires a reformed view of divine sovereignty to be defended. Two, all doctrine is interrelated. Biblical inerrancy and divine sovereignty cannot be separated. Okay? <clears throat> so, um, where am I on time? Oh, 12 minutes. Um, let me uh, keep, keep going down here. Uh, the uh, critical objections, we're, we're still talking about that, from uh, the history of the church. So I'll just go through these pretty quickly, and you can just note them. Um, um, so considering church history, as we talk about the authority of Scripture um, and the critical objections to that, some argue fundamentalists invented inerrancy. Uh, fundamentalism, fundamentalism is a movement within the church that holds to the essentials of the Christian faith. It's bigger than that, but for the sake of our time, that's in summary what it is. Uh, there are compelling arguments, however, for inerrancy always having been the church's doctrine. And uh, we're going to look at some of this later on in this uh, Sunday school class. But there are articles by Robert um, Prius and John Gerstner in, um, in a, 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 for, a book, which is a for, formulation of articles on inerrancy, edited by Norm Geisler. Um, and you can ask Ron and I afterwards about that if, you, if you're curious. Um, how about this subject from uh, specific, uh, specific assertions? And what, what, what Waldron means there is that if we're thinking about the authority of the Bible and these objections and we want to look at specific things and how this argument is worked through, um, he recommended a book, which is Alexander Haley's Alleged Discrepancies in the Bible. Maybe that's something um, you could look at as well. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> the absence of the autographs, Pete. You brought this up. Um, the argument is that, and, and we would say this uh, in, in the Reformed faith, we only maintain the autograph, um, we, we only maintain that the autographs, the original writings, were theoretically inerrant. We admit that we do not possess those autographs. Uh, no honest scholar or textual critic, um, not James White, not Dan, uh, Dan Wallace, not Michael Kruger, anyone, would say that the we believe that the copies that we have are inerrant. 
So naturally, the person who denies inerrancy would probably say, the whole argument is silly. Why are we even talking about this if you yourself would say that only the originals were inerrant and you don't have them? Why does it, how can we even have this conversation? Consider this, <clears throat> uh, the bridge in the rainstorm, I love this. There's a film of water, uh, though a film of water may keep a car tires from ever actually touching a bridge. So there is, so think about a bridge, there is a very thin layer of water um, that keeps any car tire from actually touching a bridge. Scientifically it's shown that the car tire never touches uh, the surface if there's rain because there's a film of water there. The film of water may keep the car tires from actually ever touching the bridge. But does this mean that it does not matter if the bridge itself is sound? Consider whether anyone really knows exactly what time it is. Even if this era of cell phones and computers and atomic clocks, um, which will need to be adjusted at some point or another, um, cannot never actually get at the exact time, does it not matter what time it actually is? <laughs> of course it does. <clears throat> he says that even so, textual variants which keep us from actually touching the autographs do not make it unimportant to maintain that the original autographs were inerrant. The film of water does not undermine the importance of the soundness of the bridge. The fact that no one's clock is exactly precise does not mean it's not important that we have time. Likewise, the minor textual variants and the textual tradition do not undermine the importance of the inerrancy of the autographs and the practical value of an authoritative scripture. Okay, <clears throat> did you follow that? Does that make sense? <laughs> you and, no, you and uh, George, y'all get together and, and come up with this stuff. Um, but okay, so lastly here, <clears throat> in, the, in the few minutes I have left, I'm gonna walk through, um, let me think. No, I'm not. I wanna show you some scriptures to get under your belt as we consider this. Um, if you're curious about B.B. Uh, Warfield's avalanche argument, um, talk to me afterwards. I'm gonna jump to uh, just laying out some scripture for you to take a look at. <clears throat> All right, so, again, in considering divine authority. Uh, the Bible never adversely criticizes itself. Uh, the Bible never asserts of any part of the Bible that is in error. Um, the Old Testament is sacred and, and holy. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.15, and how from childhood you have become acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ sacred, um, the sacred writings, Paul says to Timothy. Romans 1-2, which he prophesied beforehand through his prophets in the holy scriptures. Um, next, uh, the Old Testament writings are the oracles of God. Um, Romans 3-2, Acts 7-38, and Hebrews um, 5-15. They are divine utterances. Do I have a PowerPoint for that? That. Anyway, um, next, God is the ultimate uh, determinative speaker in the Old Testament. 
So again, we're thinking about the authority of Scripture. God is the ultimate determinate speaker in the Old Testament. Um, let me have someone read Acts 2, 16 to 17 for us. Don't. I don't know what that is. Don't. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Okay. Thank you. So in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. God is the ultimate determinative speaker. The phrases um, on your sheet there, the the next one, the phrases God says and scripture says are equivalent. Let me have someone read, um, if you wouldn't mind, Romans 9, 17 and Galatians 3, 8. Thank you. So, who said for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power? Who said that? God, right? But for the scripture says to Pharaoh, God actually said, said this. Galatians 3.8 And the scripture foreseeing this is a great passage by the way. For the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, who said this? In you shall all the nations be blessed. God said it. But it says, and, and the scripture foreseeing. So again, the point is that the phrases God says and scripture says are equivalent. Again, we're thinking about the authority of the word. Um, I like the way Waldron says this. He says, this holy confusion means that scripture is viewed as God speaking. He always uses such lofty language. This holy confusion means that scripture is viewed as God speaking. Next, since God is the true author of the scriptures, they are written with the distant future in mind. Romans 14, 15, 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Whatever was written in former days was written for us that we might have hope. And you see that in other places as well, that same idea. Um, Next, scripture is authoritative in detail. Um, Arguments are built on the very form of a single word. Let me have some Galatians 3.16 for us, if you wouldn't mind. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Okay, thank you. That's a very important passage as well. This being plural and this being singular makes all the difference in the world. It makes, (laughs) it's foundationally different. Offspring and offspring. The offspring, when God spoke to Abraham, this offspring was in Christ. This means that In Christ, we are Abraham's seed. In Christ, we are children of God. All the difference in the world there. That is a huge theological point. Um, Next on your sheet, uh, scripture, because it's divine, is the transcript or record of God's decrees. Um, Romans 8, 
John 19, 34 to 33. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it was born, has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Scripture, because it's divine, is the, the transcript or record of God's decrees. God spoke, and it had to be fulfilled because it's God speaking it. <clears throat> and God sees that it is. He's, he's God. He's sovereign. Lastly, um, five classic passages show us the divine authority of the Old Testament. Um, quickly, let's go to Second uh, Timothy three, sixteen, and then after that, we'll go to Second Peter. First, Second Timothy three, sixteen. Second, Second Timothy 3.16, probably a very familiar passage uh, to many of you, um, says this, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent and equipped for every good work. All scripture is breathed out by God. Second <clears throat> uh, Peter one, uh, 19 to 21. 2 Peter 1, 19 to 21. It says this, and we have something more sure. So this is Peter uh, writing, who was on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus and the other uh, a disciple, saw Jesus transfigured. He was there. And he writes this in verse 19. And we have something more sure, the prophetic word to which you will do well to pay attention. As a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of the will of men, man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. That's what the church confesses. Men spoke um, from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Um, and I think your sheet there has other um, scriptures that you can look through. But um, that is, that's pretty much what I uh, have here prepared for us to, to go through. But again, this topic of authority, and I know this was technical in a lot of areas, but this topic is important um, to, to consider, um, to have scripture that grounds us, and to give thought to um, the arguments that arise against it and um, how the church has already thought through this stuff. It's not new. Uh, we already, we've already dealt with this. Uh, the reformers, the, the church has dealt with this and have um, given, passed down to us, well, this is an argument that we've sort of considered as we talked about this. Give thought to it. Read it. Um, and look, look in the Word of God as it uh, grounds us in these things. Uh, we don't... Uh, I'm about to get all confessional and stuff. I'll save that. Um, that's it. That's all I got. Um, <laughs> again, if you want to hear about B.B. Um, uh, Warfield's avalanche argument, 
Um, I'll feel free to talk to you about it. Um, but for now, we'll, we'll close there. And then next week, we'll move into inerrancy, which I'm looking forward to as well.